Thank you for taking time out of your day to join us on the curbside as we waste a little more time in the garage with Jim Cherry, noted author, illustrator, and columnist for all things automotive, and Tony Barthel, publisher of the Curbside Car Show Calendar. Let's head to the garage and see what's going on this week on the curbside. Greetings from the garage. We are here again with the curbside podcast. We are talking three-wheeled cars, and it wouldn't be the curbside podcast without my co-conspirator in this crime of audio, Mr. Jim Cherry. And Tony, hi, how you doing? I will have you know that I am Jim Cherry the third, so it all fits together here. Really? I didn't know James that. Edgar Cherry the third, sir. Wow. I'm the first of my... <laughs> you are the first. <laughs> and, and the last. <laughs> we can only hope. Well, to my knowledge... So, well, we're talking about three-wheeled cars. What, what's wrong with four wheels? Why in the wide, wide world of sports would someone want just three? Are they saving on tires? Well, they do save one quarter of their tire budget. You know, it wasn't always guaranteed that cars were going to have four wheels when they first started out. Nobody knew what the car was really going to be like. And in fact, the very first uh, internal combustion powered car was the 1886 Benz with three wheels that had a single front wheel that was the steering wheel in front. Yeah, with a tiller, a tiller the yeah. hunt. Yeah, and, I mean, so people were just didn't have a clue what a car was going to be like. In 1911, an inventor named Reeves brought out his Octo Auto that had eight wheels. <laughs> Man, he must have been sponsored by the tire companies. You would think. All four front wheels steered the car. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and then uh, two of the two of the rear wheels were the power wheels. He claimed it was a lot safer, but I don't understand why he thought so. <laughs> well, I you know, I in those days the tires were so bad. It may, it may have made sense. They did have a lot of flat tires. Not only were the tires bad, the roads were horrible, rutted dirt roads and things. So uh, maybe he just figured, well, you could pop two or three tires and keep going with his arrangement. Yeah, that that's entirely possible. It's an argument in the RV industry for two-axle trailers. That Really? Uh, yeah, that basically you distribute the weight and also that you have the ability to uh, control it if there's a blowout. Interesting. But the subject of our chat today, of course, is the three-wheeled car, which there's been an amazing number of experiments in, in terms of those autos. One which was the really the most successful, of course, is the British Morgan, which uh, actually introduced their first three-wheeler in 1911. And it is currently in production. They brought it back in 2012. Those are neat. They have a V-twin engine up front, and currently they are driving through a five-speed Mazda Miata or MX-5 transmission to the rear wheels. Or rear yeah. wheel, rather. People that have driven them say they're just a blast on the road to handle those things. I actually have a friend who has one. Really? Have you yeah. driven it? No, he's in New York and I'm here. Perhaps a vacation's in order. But I would like to. Well, I actually had the wacky idea of building my own Morgan out of a Harley V-twin engine because it's basically the same type of engine that a Morgan uses is a V-twin. It's an air-cooled V-twin up front. Well, getting the engine and putting it in your garage is the easy part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you got to build a car. Yeah, then building a whole car around it that doesn't fall apart as I roll down the road is is the big challenge. But there is a distinct advantage that three wheel cars may still have in some areas, and I, I can see why 
they are built still for in some places. Well, they're super maneuverable and uh, you can, you know, if I make a much smaller car, of course, they tend to be used only on very small cars. In fact, the world's smallest car was the three, and it is the three-wheeled PL250 from 1962, which they made uh, 50-some examples of. It was so small that a presenter from the Top Gear show drove run around in the halls of the BBC. <laughs> I, can just see. I, I wonder if that would be the one Jeremy Clarkson. Exactly. That guy, he's a, he's, well, they're all three of those guys are characters. I really like that show. They're what the British call loons. Okay. I, I would buy that, but we're still, we've still missed the point of why three-wheeled cars are so advantageous to some. Well, they're maneuverable and uh, perhaps one of the most maneuverable ones was Buckminster Fuller's legendary Dymaxion car, which had the ability to swivel 360 degrees within its own length because the steering wheel of the three was the rear wheel, which made it really easy to park the car or whip it around in a circle. Yeah, we've, we've talked about that machine and it's a front wheel drive rear steering three-wheeled car that i i think we defined or described the driving experiences close to horrifying yeah it was pretty unstable and very hard to control in any kind of uh, highway situation but he was going from the idea that that car was supposed to fly at some point and i think he was kind of copying the tri-wheeled you know landing gear of a lot of airplanes which was fine when you're taxiing down a runway but not so good on the highway in a car very unstable but it's a cool car and and we'll link to our dimaxian podcast and dimaxian story i think we uh, we like that car yeah everybody thinks it's really cool and it had a lot of innovative ideas it just was more of an experiment than a workable car right and we may like it because we've never had to drive it too yeah exactly <laughs> but another one that's another oddball was the davis the van which we did to a a uh, blog post about that, so we'll link to it. But it was named after a sofa because it's single seat, accommodated four people sitting side by side. Yeah, it was a big old wide seat. It was a three-wheeled car, and it also had the unique characteristic of having fold-away or hidden headlights. Yeah, it had uh, hidden headlights, and uh, it had automatic built-in jacks, and it also had the ability to turn around within its own footprint. He promoted the fact that the car could do a U-turn at 40 miles an hour, <laughs> which I don't think I'd want to try that. <laughs> it makes you wonder if, you know, it would like scrape the, the bottom of the frame or the sheet metal or something. something. I, I don't know if I'd want to do that. That would just sudden change and and direction like that can lead to very unfortunate consequences uh possibly and uh it, the whole adventure with that car led to unfortunate consequences for its promoter who ended up in jail for fraud <laughs> so yeah that's he, bad he, he, he built 17 cars and that was the end of it it's amazing when you think about all of the car promoters the people who tried to start new car companies and how many of them ended up somehow incarcerated it seems like they all make the same mistake of underestimating the expense of producing mass-produced cars it's just the most money-draining expensive thing you could ever imagine do you know that ford when they designed their new taurus in back in 85 spent a billion dollars to build the first taurus yeah isn't that crazy I, and i remember that same number being thrown about with gm's failed x cars mm -hmm. and those are companies who know how to do this and know what they're doing and don't make that many mistakes so can you imagine 
a beginner learning the business? Oh, How much? Yeah. Know. Welcome, yeah. Tucker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're getting off topic, but it's true. It's it's amazing that the cost of starting a car company is is just astronomical, and. So it gives a lot of credit to Elon Musk and Tesla. Well, it does. I mean, I, I give him all credit for all his innovations and uh, you know amazing tech that he's got together there. But that company is still in big financial trouble. Yeah, and he needs. Uh, to he's stick. not out of the woods at all. I, my prediction is that, or my maybe my hope is that Apple would buy Tesla because they they belong together. And it would save the company. Well, you know, they actually had courted one another in years past. Interesting. Didn't so, know that. Yeah, that was released recently. But yeah, and he and Elon Musk, and again, we'll get back to the subject in a moment here. But <laughs> Elon Musk just needs to stay the heck away from Twitter. Well, no, what the problem is to me, he's a classic case of an innovative, visionary kind of inventor guy who's trying to run the business side of a company. That just doesn't work. That's two different guys. Yeah, that's true too. You need a business guy to run the business and the innovator to do the innovation and the visionary stuff. The visionary guy is not the dollars and cents bean counter kind of businessman. They just aren't. It's a different head. Yeah, that's that's very true. It's, It's a different guy. So anyway, we have gotten completely off topic maybe that's because we have three wheel steering but speak for yourself Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, back to three wheel cars interestingly enough just after world war ii uh the axis powers were obviously suffering greatly having had their industrial bases bombed out of existence practically and uh being restricted in what they could produce when they did get a back up and running so in japan's case they produced what's called the fuji cabin a tiny three-wheel little uh, cartoon car yeah. with a five horsepower engine that propelled it to a blistering 37 miles per hour top speed wow i think you and i saw that when we were at the peterson museum that yes, time. Peterson recently had a, a show of uh, vintage Japanese cars, and they, they had one of the rare Fuji cabins there, and they are extremely rare. Uh, one of them sold for $126,000 in 2013. Man, can you imagine? I mean, especially back then, because the early Japanese cars were not the greatest cars ever. They they obviously have really come into their own as great cars now, but the, the early ones were not that great. And so the fact that somebody kept one of these things all that time is is a testament to... Well, the thing is that uh, was produced by Hitachi Aviation, who made uh, warplanes during World War II, and they were forbidden to make any more planes. So they, out of desperation, they went to making cars. So it was kind of a reluctant <laughs> change for them. And I don't think their heart was in it all that strongly. And I wonder, Fuji Cabin, I wonder if they're related to Fuji Heavy Industries, which today is the manufacturer of Subaru. Again, we're off the topic, Yes, Tony. I know. Well, it's that three-wheel steering. <laughs> Let's get back to just post-World War II. In Germany, they had a typical, or I should say a similar situation as they did in Japan and Messerschmitt famed for making Luftwaffe airplanes was forbidden to make any airplanes right after the war so they went to making their own cars a little three-wheeler that had tandem seating for two people you know one in front of the other with a clear plexiglass canopy just like a Luftwaffe fighter plane yep those are those were cool I knew uh I don't know why but for some reason that really appeals to me in that movie The Adams Family 
where Lumpy had, well, no, it was Cousin It had one of those. Oh, he did? I didn't see that. (laughs) Stupid junk that occupies my brain. But yeah, the so so I had alluded to why these cars may be popular in certain circumstances, and part of that there's there's a couple of reasons. So we'll we'll keep going on the three wheel cars. But the one of the reasons that they have a lot of appeal in post war Germany, you didn't need a driver's license if it only had three wheels. Yeah, that's a good point, Tony. Because even in America, three wheeled cars are considered motorcycles and uh if they're enclosed you don't have to wear a helmet and you don't have to if you're a manufacturer you don't have to abide by all the safety regulations and and uh protections and legal restrictions of a four-wheeled car so it's actually cheaper to make a lot uh, of simplicity involved there yeah so three-wheeled car huge manufacturing advantages in terms of not having to undergo as much regulation and it's licensed as a motorcycle even if it's a completely enclosed vehicle in in most areas and And that might be why some uh slippery operators have entered the automotive field with proposed three-wheeled cars yeah it's just a much easier i mean imagine what it costs just to crash test a car yeah exactly they don't have to do any of that stuff nope. and so we talked about the davis divan another slippery kind of uh, <laughs> promotion it was even more bogus than the davis i think the the davis guy actually tried to produce cars i don't think he knew what he was doing and it was desperately underfunded but I think he he tried, uh, honestly, to do something. Whereas in the mid-70s, there was a car called the Dale that was, from the outset, was a complete scam, three-wheeled car. What what type of, was were there any produced? Uh, They actually made two. One of them worked, and one of them was just a mock-up model, full size. Uh, The Peterson actually owns one of them, and sometimes you'll see it on their display floor to this day. It was a... Almost looked kind of like a Pinto, uh, very 70s looking, but kind of futuristic with the uh, three wheel configuration. It was, Guy was convincing enough with his presentation of the car that they actually offered one as a prize on the Price is Right. (laughs) Did anybody win it? Luckily, no one won the car (laughs) because there really wasn't a car to win, you know? It was just a hype. And interestingly enough, the promoter of the adventure was a six foot tall, 200 pound transvestite fugitive from the law. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, you don't have a lot of auto executives who can claim that. (laughs) Wow. That's, and uh, yeah, when the uh, when the uh, whole thing collapsed and uh, people started asking what the, where the money went because she'd actually attracted some investment, she went on the lam and disappeared for a number of years. And then a TV show was I think Unsolved Mysteries or one of those did a coverage of her and she got discovered through that TV show. She was running a flower shop and. Uh, they put her in prison for a while. Huh. That's wacky. You know, they can't make this stuff up. I mean, some of these stories are just, they're fantastic. And you look at that Dale, and it has Pontiac um, Firebird taillights on it and AMC door handles. It's a it's a wacky collection of car stuff. Hey, you got to do what you got to do, Tony. Come on. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the woman's a- trying to remark, and she had, I can't remember what the claim was, but it was supposed to be this fantastic like 45 miles per gallon or something, you know, which was for the time was uh, outrageous. So that was the Dale. What time frame was that? What, when was the, when was the Dale? That was, uh, I got to look that up, but it was early to mid seventies. 
So that's when fuel economy was really, I mean, I remember in 79, all of a sudden the, the filling stations were having trouble trying to figure out how to make the pumps read over a dollar a gallon. It was, it was a genuine problem. Well, but it was even worse with the first oil shock in the, like 73, 74 back in there. And I think that's about when the Dale came out. Oh, man. So, so yeah. the timing was just right to, for people to be interested, you know, in a very high, uh, high mileage car like that. But uh, unfortunately, it wasn't real. Yeah. I, for anybody who wasn't around then in 73, when they had the oil, the Arab oil embargo, what happened was we went from this country that just used fuel like there was no tomorrow to suddenly there was like as if someone had shut off the spigot and we had gas rationing and we had. Uh, like if your license plate ended in an odd number, you would only be able to go to gas stations on odd days. And huge lines, people would fight with each other at the gas station. And suddenly these giant cars that we had become so accustomed to went from being, you know, just something that a lot of people had to these, like people were selling off. I remember in the 70s, my dad was thinking of getting a used Buick Wildcat. And it was not much used and it was something like 500 bucks or something the guy was just fire selling it and then we went and looked at a fleetwood brougham uh and again it was just the resale value on these big cars just went away and then the oil embargo ended and we started buying big cars again that's what we do every time just like we're doing right now with yeah. the big suvs and huge pickup trucks and everything yep although to their credit detroit's engineers have credibly increased the mileage figures for these large heavy vehicles they're doing mileage figures now that some of the small cars couldn't do back in the 70s no that's true i mean i we did end up at that time buying a volkswagen super beetle which by that point in time there's so much emissions junk on it and all it actually got terrible gas mileage and as a side benefit it was gutless too oh boy yeah, but, but we digress. Indeed. And w- just to get back to the three-wheel topic here and the scammy topic, I'm not sure if you know anything about the Elio car, Tony. Are you? I remember yeah. looking at that when it was when it was announced and such, and being very intrigued by it. Yeah, it was an interesting idea. Uh, it was several years ago. I think it was 2014 or something when it first came out, and uh, the idea was a three-wheeled car, very aerodynamic. And, you know, two wheels in the front, which is the smart way to go. It was going to come with complete with airbags, air conditioner, stereo, everything you needed. And again, it was tandem seating with one behind the other. And uh, it was supposed to get something like 85 miles per gallon and sell for $6,800. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And their, their website is still active and you can you can actually get updates according to them to you know paul elio who started the company he wrote himself a contract with the company that every year that he keeps it going he gets a two hundred fifty thousand dollar a year salary so he's Ah. motivated to keep the dream alive i think any way he can interesting but bottom line is get a kind of a subscription thing a deposit situation where if you paid a different amounts for different degrees of commitment but typical was a thousand dollar deposit and that gave you a guaranteed place in line to get one of the first ones and support this all-american you know in adventure in innovation and so people i think it was kind of cruel in a way because people were excited about supporting an american company and having a economical car and doing something for our innovation industrially i thought it was just unfortunately the the thing collapsed the guy signed up to uh rent a factory space in louisiana Uh, 
he had his own engine designed, which is hugely expensive. They spent tens of millions of dollars, and the whole thing collapsed with him stating that at this point, he needs $350 million to put the car into production. And there's just, that money ain't coming. Yeah, it it, it seems like I'm looking at the website right now, which is Elio, E-L-I-O motors.com. We'll provide a link in the show notes. And it would seem that there's plenty of sources for a three-liter, uh, three-cylinder, 0.9-liter engine, including the one that's in the smart car. I think that's a comparable size. So why why go to that expense? I don't get it. Well, a lot of people wondered about that. And, and in fact, as the company went down in flames and towards the end, they were saying, oh, no, we're going to use an off-the-shelf motor after all. We're not going to use our own motor. And we're going to raise the price. And you're going to have to wait another year. And, you know, and it's like, okay, okay, whatever. Yeah, you know. it, it's too bad. It's kind of a cool looking car, sort of, but. Yeah, I thought it was a great idea. I love the little, the looks of it. It's like almost aircraft looking. Uh, yep. The thing was almost as long as a Honda Accord. It's not as tiny as it looks in photographs, mm. but very uh, efficient design. And I, I was all for it. I thought it would be wonderful if it had succeeded, but it just, it never really had a chance to succeed given the way they were going about it. Yeah, they they claim 84 highway and 49 city, but truthfully, you could go out, well, if you could find one, get a used Golf diesel and get not that much worse fuel economy and have four seats in a car that if you crashed, you might actually walk away from. Well, yeah, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> loose uh, loose nuts and bolts in this whole scheme of the Elio, unfortunately. It's just kind of sad, the whole thing. It's uh, another of those wacky cars. And again, I, I'm almost, as somebody who really loves cars, which makes sense that we're both here, we both do. Anytime you see a three-wheel car, it makes you just, okay, what are they, what are they not doing? They're not including that fourth wheel. Well, that and they're... <laughs> They're bypassing any crash testing, any safety regulations. or It's just, yeah. There was another three-wheeled experimental project that was trying to go into production and, and got very far. It was called the Aptera, and it was an electric-powered car that looked like a Cessna if you took the wings off it. It was very futuristic and aerodynamic-looking, really kind of a cool little car. And one of them appeared in a Star Trek movie with uh, Spock and uh, what's his name? Huh. Who's the other guy? Oh, uh <laughs> William Shatner. Well, that character, anyway, uh, driving it around. So uh, it, it made a splash, but it, too, went broke. They didn't have enough funding, <laughs> and they ended up trashing their the bodies they'd produced in advance. They had a few of them fiberglassed out and ready to go, and they just threw them away. And, you know, it's only, I think, two working cars built or something like that. I don't think they tried to do anything tricky. They just ran out of money and couldn't keep the thing going. Yeah, that's a... It's a neat looking car. It really, it's probably the most aircraft-like looking car of the lot that we have here. Yeah, I thought it was really exciting. I was really into it. It was, uh, I think, a, just a two-seater, but a beautiful little car. Yeah, they, they definitely did a great job with the styling. And, and it's a shame some of these, you know, some of these would make a tremendous amount of sense in the city. Yeah, they would, uh, especially an electric one. You could whip around and park it easy. And, you know, it's just, it seems like a, a perfect solution in some uh, regards for city driving, but we have yet to see one really work out that way. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Well, actually, there is one three-wheeled car that 
has actually been fairly successful. And what is that, Tony? The good old Reliant Robin in oh, England. The, <laughs> that actually was successful. You're right about that. That was a rare case of a three-wheeled car that had some mass appeal. Yeah, in, it, in, in England, there was some kind of big advantage in terms of taxes or registration or something. If you only had three wheels, it was a real, uh, there was a real economic reason for that car in terms of their laws. That Reliant car is, was popular, well, relatively popular in England. They built it for 30 years, believe it or not. Yeah, it was the world's second most produced fiberglass car. I guess the Corvette maybe was the first most produced fiberglass car. Yeah, and they're still building them, and now there's going to be a mid-engine one. But again, I, I digress. Um, a mid-engine Reliant Robin? No, Corvette. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> you're scaring me. Oh, man. Yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> Maybe you could sit on the engine, but... There's a great uh, Top Gear video on YouTube of, uh, what's his name, Clarkson, yeah. driving the Reliant Robin around in England and tipping it over every time he turns a corner. <laughs> it's it's, hilar it's hilarious. And he, he goes even to a Reliant Robin meet. And apparently there's there's quite the collector market for them in England. And uh, he keeps tipping it over. It's I'll post it on the show notes. It's really funny, as as those Top Gear videos tend to be. Well, the English love eccentricity above all, and that car certainly fits the bill for that. Oh, Wait no. A Wait a minute. I think somebody's trying to get in the uh, studio here. Well, speaking of eccentricity. What you talking eccentricity? What is this? What are you talking? I got no eccentricity. I thought about to, I got some ideas for you on these three-wheeled cars. So I'll tell you something. You've got something eccentricity. You guys, not, you guys don't, don't think about it. You don't think about it. You're just talking blah, blah, blah. <laughs> And what do you have for us, Dr. Hedgasket? I'm telling you, three field cars are the answer. You have one-fourth less rubber tires to rubberize on the road. It saves you how much money over your lifetime you spend on that fourth tire. How many times you got to buy that fourth tire? Think you go to the tire man. You say, I only want three tires. He says, you just got a discount of 25%. Yeah, fewer tires. What's your problem with this? Well, how about... How about handling? Handling schmandling. What are you, <laughs> driving a race car? Wow. Give me a break. I, in fact, I'm working on a further improvement beyond the three-wheeled car. Oh, The no. great frontier. The two-wheeled car. That's what uh, you're going to drive. <laughs> I, isn't there a name? I think they call it a motorcycle. I don't think so. No? They got, they got no roof on a motorcycle. So you're I'm talking about a car, my friend. With the roof and only two wheels. You only need two wheels. Look at a bicycle, a motorcycle, whatever. <laughs> well, I, I can't wait to see that. Are you soliciting investors? or? Well, first, I got to figure out how it works. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I got ideas, I tell you. I guess so. I have ideas, too. But anyway, I'm trying to save the people some money on all these tires. And you know what? When these tires are finished, they go pile them up in big piles. They catch on fire. They damage the environment and they cause all kind of problems. It's a pollutant. You don't want all these tires around. No, no. So you're so wait, I have an even better idea, Dr. Headgasket. What is this? One tire. I was getting to that. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I, okay. One tire. Think about it. All you need is a single tire. You're just rolling down the road and steering. One tire can do these things for you. Sort of. Like- you don't need these big Ford tires all the time. All the time. <laughs> Look at. Have you ever seen a unicycle? Yeah, I have. How many tires? One. That's my point. So a one <laughs> tire <laughs> car. <laughs> That's my point. <laughs> all, all, all of a sudden, head gaskets become Italian. <laughs> well, it's all the uh, excess powers. Who cares? Yeah, that's true. Well, okay. Well, we'll we'll keep an eye out for your one tire car. Well, uh, no, I'm going in stages here. Don't rush me. Uh, head gasket will first introduce the three wheeled head gasket mobile. Oh. Man. <laughs> Will it have a capture the gas bumper sticker on it as standard? Very good, Tony. Yes, of course. All of my vehicles must uh, advertise. Yes. I'm glad you remembered that. Oh, yeah. I think we're going to have those available for people pretty soon. Capture the gas. That's why the methane is going to waste. You could be powering your cars with cow farts tomorrow. It's just got to get the cow to run along beside you. No, we got to think of some way to capture the gas. That's all. <laughs> okay, well, I, we'll work on all of those. I'm we'll... going to go now. I miss my little closet. I'm going away. All right. <laughs> well, at least he's uh, resigned himself to life in the closet back there. Well, he's he's got drawings on the wall. He's painted the entire darn closet with that chalkboard paint, and he's writing away like mad. Yeah, he's well. He's he claims he's an inventor. I, we just gotta wait and see what he actually invents. Yeah, I'm besides a whole lot of chalk dust and claims. Yeah, and <laughs> capture the gas bumper stickers. <laughs> so far, the output is pretty <laughs> dismal. <laughs> Ghastly, you could say. Oh, there we go. That's the old Tony. Yeah. So any other three-wheel shenanigans or vehicles that that you can think of? Well, there's a few, but most of the uh, highlights we've covered, I think. uh, And we uh, do encourage people to go to curbside.tv where we'll have photographs of all these cars, these crazy cars. We'll even have a photograph of the Octo Auto. You got to see that thing. Yeah, that's that's something. Yeah, so I think we've pretty well covered things in the three-wheeled car world. Yes, indeed. I'd like to invite everybody out there. We've had uh, a lot of fun coming up with topics and especially We've had 33 shows, and we still have a bunch of exciting guests and all of that lined up. But if there's something you'd like us to cover, don't be shy. You can write in. Just go to curbside.tv. There's a contact us form there, and and that's where you'll uh, be able to write in a suggestion for a topic. Or you can also uh, find car shows and post those there as well. So lots of cool stuff on that website. I like it. I like the way you talk, sir. Indeed. While it may sound like two miscreants in the basement of their mom's garage, It actually takes a village to put this on, and we've got those village people. Our Cordoba interior advisor is Ricardo Desmontalban. Our college intern is Iona Heap. The evasive driving instructor is Vera Abruptly. We'd like to thank Wendy DeWitt, the queen of Boogie Woogie, and Kirk Harwood for our music. Now go get something productive done. That honeydew list isn't getting any shorter.